the FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week we look at the elections to the European Parliament, which take place between May 22nd and May 25th. Some 28 EU countries with a population of around 500 million people will return a new batch of legislators to the Parliament, and there's widely expected to be a surge in support for far-right and far-left parties. But what will that mean for the future of the European Union? Joining me on the line from Brussels is our bureau chief there, Peter Spiegel, and here in the studio is Tony Barber, our Europe editor. Peter, I mean, I've highlighted there the expected surge for the fringes, which is obviously journalistically very interesting, but am I right to highlight that as the main trend to look out for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you would talk to people in Brussels, there are some quarters who say that perhaps we are paying too much attention to it. And they make the argument that, you know, even the worst case scenarios, we're talking maybe 30% of the parliament will be Eurosceptic. The two big mainstream parties, the center-left socialists and the center-right European People's Party, will get between them somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 of the 750 seats. So clearly a vast majority will go to the mainstream parties. But when you start looking at country by country, it is amazing. If you look at even the founding members of the EU, France, Italy, the Netherlands, all three of those countries are likely to have Eurosceptic parties finish first or second. Then you throw in the UK, you throw in Finland, you throw in Denmark. There's anywhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 countries where these parties could finish in first and second. So yes, in some parts of Europe, they don't exist. Some big countries like Spain and Poland, you're going to get no Eurosceptic parties, and that's why it can be kept to 30% overall. But in a huge number of major EU countries, you are going to get these parties finishing in first or second, or in some cases, third place. And that is no doubt going to have an effect on the debate on Europe in those countries. Now, Tony, you've been in the slightly uh, privileged, perhaps peculiar position of actually moderating debates between the leaders of the mainstream parties, the ones they want to put forward as head of the European Commission after the parliamentary elections. People like Jean-Claude Juncker on the centre-right, Guy Verhofstadt, the Liberal, and Martin Schulz for the Socialists. Do you get a sense that those mainstream leaders have yet assimilated what's happening with this surge to the Eurosceptic parties? Do they have an answer for it? They're well aware of it, and at least Juncker, for one, has said explicitly that he would refuse to rely on the parliamentary support from any of these extremist parties were he to be put forward formally for the job of Commission President. Their answers, well, at the debate that I moderated in Florence last week, Verhofstadt, for example, said that his three priorities were jobs, 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 and if he got the commission presidency that's the sort of thing he would concentrate on where i think they might not be particularly convincing to european voters is the fact that it was difficult really to distinguish policy programs one from the other they all clearly believe strongly in a coherently organized integrated uh, eu particularly the euro area and uh, I didn't get the feeling that there was a great variety of, of opinion on really the core issues facing Europe, uh, starting with the state of the economy and employment. So, Peter, it looks like after the parliamentary elections, we'll be looking at a parliament still dominated by the centre-right and centre-left to essentially agree in being in favour of deeper European integration, and then a very large group barracking them from the far right and the far left, united perhaps only by their dislike of the European Union. 
Yeah, it's true. Uh, but one of the things, again, which I think we need to highlight is, while it's true that the vast majority in Parliament, in terms of passing legislation through Parliament, the vast majority will be the centrist parties. If you throw in the Liberals there, again, you're going to get well over 400, you know, even close to 450. But the question is, what impact do these countries have back in the home countries? Because let's remember, the European legislation is not just the European Parliament. The European Council, which is made of the member states, also has a huge impact. Look at the two or three countries where we've had a direct impact back home. You can look at Britain, you can look at the Netherlands, and you can look at Finland, where we've had Eurosceptic parties really doing quite well for some time now. You know, David Cameron in particular was the man who became leader of the Tory party, saying we shouldn't be banging on about Europe. And yet the rise of UKIP has forced him to promise a referendum in or out on EU membership. So it has a direct impact on UK policy. Similarly, Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, because of the rise of Gert Wilders, who is the head of the Freedom Party, they're sort of their anti-EU right-wing populist party, he has presented a 54-point policies that he doesn't believe that EU should participate in. And similarly, the Finnish government has gone through fits on a lot of these Eurozone bailouts because the Social Democrats, because they lost so many of their core voters to the True Finns, which is their populist party, the Prime Minister announced he was resigning uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So the point I think people need to realize is, yes, okay, we'll have the vast majority of the parliament here is going to be mainstream parties. But these guys now will have soapboxes at the European Parliament where they can project back into the member states. If we take those countries as examples where they've had a huge impact, we could see that in a far greater number of EU countries. And that could really put a sort of sand in the dirt of the wheels here in Brussels. And Tony, of course, we're talking about a European Parliament that has gained significant powers in recent years because as recently as a decade ago when I was based in Brussels, it was kind of important, but it really wasn't the repository of European power. But now it has much more say over European legislation. It basically has a say in 90% or more of EU legislation, but this needs to be put in perspective. It still doesn't have the right actually to propose laws. And furthermore, it doesn't have any right to influence things like taxation, labour markets, distributional fiscal policies, all these remain very much under the control of national governments. And I think this helps explain why turnout at European Parliament elections has steadily declined ever since the first one in 1979. It's because voters, whatever their full extent of knowledge about the European Parliament, know that it doesn't actually have powers on these core economic policy issues. And yet, nonetheless, Peter... I get the impression that the leaders of the national governments are slightly horrified by the powers they seem to have ceded to the European Parliament. And if, as you suggest, they're going to be under pressure from a Eurosceptic surge at home, are we now having the background for a real institutional struggle between an assertive parliament and national leaders who are less and less inclined to play ball with them? We've seen that already, and I think, as you say, it's going to get even worse. I mean, I think the biggest one is going to be the first one off the bat, the decision of who the European Commission president is going to be. Now, this idea of picking Spitzenkandidat, which is sort of lead candidates for all major parties, which, again, Tony moderated debate in, this was very much an idea of the European parliamentary parties. The heads of state, particularly on the center-right, Angela Merkel and some of the rest, really did not like this idea because this takes this out of the hands of the leaders. Well, the choice of a European Commission president to 
replaced Jose Manuel Barroso is, frankly, a joint decision. It is essentially nominated by the heads of state at the European Council and then approved by the European Parliament. Well, what happens if the European Parliament says we must go with one of these Spitzenkandidaten, whichever party becomes the largest in the new parliament, and the heads of state say, well, actually, we want one of the prime ministers to be the new head of the European Commission. We could have weeks, if not months, of standoff. And there is, I must say, if you talk to both sides at this point, you get incredibly differing answers about how this is going to proceed. The folks on the European Council side say, of course, the heads of state will be picking. And if you talk to the parliament, they say, of course, the parliament will be picking. And so we could have an institutional standoff from the very beginning. So, yes, I think this is going to be a predominant feature of the EU as we go forward. And Tony, not perhaps the optimal time for the EU to engage in massive naval gazing and institutional deadlock, given that internally you'll have a surge in support for populist parties, which requires some sort of political response. And externally, you've got this massive crisis on their borders with Ukraine and Russia. That's very true. And I think it also highlights the fact that the European Parliament, for example, doesn't have any control over EU foreign policy. That doesn't stop it from passing resolutions frequently on foreign policy issues, but it doesn't actually have any say on the direction of EU foreign policy. That remains totally in the hands of national governments and the new diplomatic service that the EU now has. But overall, it's true there could be nothing worse, I think, for the image of the EU in the eyes of voters uh, if the first crisis after the elections, as Peter suggests, is an institutional showdown over complex policy-making decisions that the electorate simply doesn't understand. Yeah, and Peter, we've talked about the aggregate effect of this populist surge, but obviously it's going to be more dramatic in some countries than in others. It strikes me that really the big one is France. I mean, if you have the National Front, a far-right party with quite uh, dodgy roots, even if it's slightly cleaned up its act, coming top in France, you know, a state which, along with Germany, has driven this whole process. Is that in itself a crisis, regardless of the kind of institutional effects? Yeah, and they're polling first right now. So that is a, potentially a very real outcome. Now, you talk to French officials about this, and their argument is it's not like Front National is about to become the first party in France. They had local elections just a few weeks ago, and they did well in some constituencies, won a mayor race here or there. But it's not like suddenly they are going to become even the first or second parties of France. This is not something that's going to have a direct impact in what is basically a two-party system uh, inside France. But it is certainly a loss, a huge loss for Francois Hollande and the socialists. I mean, this is a man who just came to office two years ago, and his party is going to finish third behind the UMP and the socialists. And they will become the largest populist party here in Brussels. They have tried to form alliances. They've campaigned together with the Dutch Freedom Party of Gert Wilders. Now, you know, whether nationalist parties who are by definition contained to their own nation can actually get along here in Brussels is something that a lot of people speculate about. But if you suddenly you have Front National having double-digit seats here in Brussels and being able to talk back and project back into France, that is no doubt going to affect the debate inside France going into their own domestic election. So, yes, I mean, that is going to be the one that everyone is watching. The other one I would just say, not the biggest country in the world, but one that we always watch here in Brussels is Greece. We have now a coalition government that is finally beginning to turn itself around. 
But we're again likely to see the far-right Golden Dawn neo-Nazi party and the far-left Syriza. Syriza it could finish first place. What happens if the far-left party finishes first place in Syriza and PASOK, which is, again, the traditional center-left party, basically is wiped out? Right now, the governing coalition is center-right doomed democracy and center-left PASOK. Well, there's a lot of speculation that that could lead to collapse of the government. And suddenly, just at the time that Greece is, is finally turning itself around after four or five years of recession and Eurozone crisis, the government collapsed. And we see an anti-EU party become the largest party in Greece. So it's not just the bigs that people are watching here in Brussels. It's a lot of these small countries that could have a real strong impact and affect the broader European story as well. And this may be a slightly frivolous way of looking at it, Peter, but European Parliament's not been the most interesting institution to observe. If nothing else, it's going to become rather lively. It is, and I must say that even those who are have worked a long time in the European project here, there are some quarters that are wringing their hands with dismay, but there are some quarters who said this is the debate we should have been having for a long time. At last, the lament of sort of the European Federalists for decades has been every European Parliament election is about domestic issues. There's no one voting on European issues. Well, you know what? They're finally voting on European issues, and they're going to have a Parliament that's going to have to gauge on European issues. And so there are some people who would consider themselves not Federalists necessarily, but champions of the European project who actually welcome this debate, who are actually kind of finally seeing, think that there is, you know, a parliament that's going to see almost a grand coalition in government and an opposition who's against them in the Eurosceptic. So not everyone is doom and gloom here. Some people think it could actually re-energize the European project to have that debate out there. Tony, what do you think? I mean, the European Union seems to be in perpetual crisis in some ways over the last decade with the euro crisis and so on, but it's established quite a track record of making progress over the last 50 years. Do you think that we should regard this pretty certain surge of populist parties as a wholly bad sign or do you think there are plus sides as well i think that the rise in the populist party's support won't paralyze the european parliament as an institution i think peter is quite right to point out the real impact will be on politics in each nation state in each member state of the eu and here's where the problem for the future arises the way in which the mainstream governing parties of centre-right and centre-left around Europe will feel somewhat on the defensive because of the rise of the populist parties is likely to create obstacles to the kind of integrating measures required to fully overcome the Eurozone crisis and indeed stabilize the eu moving forward so it's a kind of insidious side effect of the rise of populism it's going to make it difficult i think particularly in france i think you will see this effect okay tony barber here in london and peter spiegel in brussels thanks very much indeed i'm sure there'll be a lot more to comment on as the campaign reaches its climax and as the results come in but that's it for now until next week goodbye for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.